Good morning again. So I think our culture seems to be allergic to the concept of waiting. And I think that's come from the fact that we are so used to just pressing our phones, pressing a button and something coming to us absolutely instantly. Have you ever had that kind of panic attack where you're sitting in like a waiting room and you know your phone battery is about to die and you're sitting there and you're going, oh my gosh, but I still need this uh, for my way home. Or you might be on the bus too and you don't, you know, you don't have access to a charger. And so you immediately start thinking, well, what am I going to do? What am I supposed to do? Should I read a book? Should I read a magazine or talk to a complete stranger to pass the time? We are simply just not good at waiting. But other cultures don't really seem to have this problem. See, when I was in India, I went on a mission trip out there back in 2012, 2013. We went over uh, the New Year's holiday. We were told before we went to be ready to live on India time. And here's an example of what India time meant. On a previous trip, our leader, uh, our team leader, she was back there in India and they were working on building a sports court. And she was told that this concrete shipment would arrive at about 9 or 10 a.m. in the morning. But it didn't arrive until 1 p.m. and nobody was upset about it. Right? Because they were on India time. That's just how things go. And that's how their culture is. And nobody was upset. Nobody was getting frustrated. It's just the way things kind of went around there. I guess they're kind of better at waiting than we are. But see, Je Jesus told us that we were going to have to wait. He told us that he was going to return someday. And so now we're living in this kind of tension, this kind of time where we're waiting and waiting for him to return. So the questions become, what do we do? How do we live while we wait for him to return? And this is something that we need to learn because we far too easily get tunnel vision focusing on our lives here and now rather than on God's kingdom. There's all kinds of things that take our attention. We get focused on rather than thinking about what God wants us to do, which is going to work, raising our kids, going to school, being with friends, being on social media, simply just living during a pandemic and so much more. But here is what we need to learn is that we live for the glory of Jesus in everything we do here and now while we wait for him to return and bring his justice to the world. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to look at three mentalities that we need to have as followers of Jesus while we wait for Jesus to return and to bring the justice of God. So we're starting a new series this morning called The Now and the Not Yet. And we're talking about this tension that we now live in as Christians. You see, Jesus declared in his ministry that the kingdom has arrived. It is here. And yet he and the apostles also talked about this future kingdom that would happen when all of God's work would, be, would come to completion. So there is now this, there's a now of the kingdom has arrived, but also this not yet. There, and so we live in this tension. And so the questions we're going to ask during this series are, what do we do while we wait for Jesus to return? How do we know when he will return? How do we know that he actually will return? And what will happen when he does return? And so we're going to respond to those questions by studying the letter of 2 Thessalonians. Now, this is a letter in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul to the church at a city called Thessalonica. 
And so Thessalonica was located on a protected bay of the northwest corner of the Aegean Sea. Now, if you actually look at the map, you can see uh, myself and Pastor Micah took a team to Lesbos right over here. We are in kind of this region of the island. So we weren't that far from this area. But Paul was recorded as visiting the city of Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, where he stayed preaching the gospel, sharing the good news of Jesus for some time between a few weeks upwards to a few months. While he was there, he led some women to faith. They came to know Jesus. But his proclamation that Jesus was the Messiah caused an uproar and rioting in the city, which forced him to leave sooner than he had planned on. However, despite that fact that, that Paul had to leave earlier, the church flourished and had great success in converting many others, but they still had some major questions to Paul because there were some things that Paul taught that they didn't quite understand. So that prompted Paul to write 1 Thessalonians. First of all, he was thankful. He was excited to hear about how they were growing even though he had to leave early. And then after that letter was sent to them, they had even more questions about you know, Jesus' return and what all that kind of meant. And so that prompted him to write this second letter that we are looking at. And so this letter was written in the early 50s AD. Somewhere these are some of Paul's first writings that he first sent out. And so throughout, but throughout the, the two letters, we kind of get a glimpse that the Thessalonians are going through some kind of suffering. So we ask the question, what was the suffering the Thessalonians were going through? And it is not exactly clear based on the context of the passage, what they were going through. But based on history, it would make sense to, that it would had to do with the imperial cult worship in the Roman Empire. You see, they worshipped their emperor. They also worshipped other gods as well. But then this was more than just kind of a religious thing, but it was also a patriotic thing. And again, it was inextricably tied to the emperor. So to follow Jesus, to proclaim yourself as a follower of Jesus, was to say, Jesus is now my king and not the emperor. So that was viewed as rebellion back in the day. And that's why you would see things like baptism be actually kind of a, a very scary public moment for a lot of people because they were declaring Jesus as their king and not Caesar. And so... This is why the riots occurred. But you also had something else happening why the riots were occurring in Acts chapter 17. Also to the Jews, they were upset because Paul was preaching about Jesus being the Messiah, but he had been crucified. And so that was blasphemous to them. They said, no way. Our, our Savior is not going to be somebody who was crucified on a shameful cross. He's going to come and be a conquering king. So they were mad. Then again, you also have the Romans who are mad because they're saying Jesus is now king and not Caesar. Just a wonderful win-win situation here for Paul. But it would likely mean that the Thessalonian church had people in their church arrested, beaten. They probably lost work. They were executed and many more things because of their faith in Jesus and proclamation that he was king. And so let's dive right in. Let's get into verses 1 through 4 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 to start. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. And so Paul begins this letter in the very typical way of that day. And it's 
You know, we have a different format of letters, how we write letters in our culture, if people still write letters. I don't know that they actually do. But they'll say, Dear John, and then they'll have the body of their letter, and then at the end, they'll address it that they wrote it. In this culture, you start with the person who is sending it, and then to the audience. And so Paul says that to the church of the Thessalonians, he's making sure that they know it's for them. But then he gives them this blessing, and it's grace and peace to you. See, in the Jewish culture, they would say peace, shalom, which meant complete, completeness, wholeness, that their life would be completely satisfied. But Christians then added on this grace concept because of what Jesus had done for them on the cross. So grace and peace. He's blessing them. He's saying, I want you to have this as part of your life. But then he gets into a section that is thanksgiving. This is a very, like, common uh, structure to Paul's writings. He starts with the greeting, then the, who he's writing to, and then he, a blessing, and then the thanksgiving. And here's what he says. We are always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters. He's, and he's thanking God for them, and he says, rightly so, meaning they deserve this credit that he is giving to them because, he says, your faith is growing more and more. Now, I want to make sure I clarify something about faith here. Sometimes we view faith as merely just this feeling, like I feel my faith growing in Jesus, but it's more like an emotional thing, like maybe in that particular moment we're have on some emotional high that we really feel connected to God. But the word here in the Greek just means faithfulness, consistency, dedication. It's not just about the, the placing of our faith in Christ initially for salvation, but the ongoing day-to-day -day dedication to Jesus through our faith. And as we'll see later, the way that we behave as Christians reveals the true depth of our faith and not our emotions. And so the love for one another, then, that Paul says he's, he's thankful for for them, is about the love they have for the community of believers. Sometimes people think of that as saying love for one another, talking about people outside the church. Here, he's not talking about that. Yes, we as Christians are to love people outside the church, to show them Jesus. But here, he's talking about their love for one another and that they were doing this well. So even though we're going to see this, that Paul is kind of upset about some things that the Thessalonians are doing, He's at least happy about these two things. He's giving them some encouragement. He's seeking to bolster their confidence and hope because of the suffering that they are going through. And so because of the fact that they are growing in this way, Paul then is now boasting about them to other churches. He's talking about them, saying, hey, hey, have you heard about what's happening with the Thessalonians? They're continuing to grow. They're continuing to endure through persecutions. So they were persevering, this meaning enduring and continuing to be faithful to Jesus, despite the fact that they are being persecuted. They are continuing to show devotion and loyalty to Jesus and not abandoning their belief in him. You see, many times when people are new to the faith, to Christianity, they are surprised when they face difficulties early on. But this is not at all what we should expect as followers of Jesus. And so this gives us our first mentality this morning is that we embrace the reality that persecution and trials will come on us as Christians. You see, it's as true as any reality in the Christian life. You will face trouble and persecution. And by the fact that you're facing those things does not mean that you're doing it wrong in some way. In fact, you might be doing it right because you are facing persecution. So we talked about this last week when we looked at the example from the, the apostles in the book of Acts. They knew that persecution and trials were coming because Jesus told them to expect it. Listen to this from John 16, 33. 
I have told you these things, and at that point he's talking about the fact that he has to go away, so that in me you may have peace. And then he says this, in this world you will have trouble. He directly tells them that they're going to face trouble. And I honestly don't know how anyone can read the Bible and come to the conclusion that Christians are not supposed to suffer in any way, shape, or form, especially when Jesus says something like this. But I want us to notice something else of what Jesus says next. So he says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Meaning that through what Jesus is going to do on the cross, that means that what he did on the cross has overcome all of that stuff, all of that persecution. And so what this means is that our persecutions and trials, they do not have the final word over us. Jesus does. What Jesus did on the cross does. So if we put our faith in him, that has the final word, not our persecution, what we go through in persecution and trials. But it is fair to ask the question, why, why should we expect persecutions and trials. See, I mentioned this a little bit last week when we were talking about passionate witness, but our faith goes totally against the grain of the world's wisdom. See, in the mind of the world, we can save ourselves by just being good enough. We can be smart enough and we'll make something of ourselves. But see, the Christian faith says you cannot be good enough. And Jesus came to be enough for us. And that there was this grand transaction that happened, that we were born in sin and had no way of being able to fix our sin condition that led us to, to sin in ways that we wish we never would. And then Jesus, who was perfect, took our sin upon himself upon the cross so that his righteousness then gets placed upon us so that when God sees us, he sees Jesus and sees his righteousness it's this beautiful, grand transaction. That is the only way that people can be saved. And so what we're doing when we tell people about Jesus, what we're essentially telling them is, look, everything about you and everything you believe and what you think and what you know is wrong and it needs to change. Would you be very receptive if somebody said that to you? But at its core, that's what we're actually doing. Even though we know and believe it's the truth and it's loving to tell them this, obviously we'd say it in a much more gracious way than that. But I want you to understand that. So when we're saying that, we should expect persecution and trials because people are not going to want to hear that. They don't like hearing that. But I want us to understand something else as well. Not only that idea, but the enemy Satan does not want people to realize that they are sinners and that they can be saved from their sin, that there is a choice to make that they can be saved. Instead, he wants to keep them down there. He wants to press them down and keep them in their sin and devour them in it. So he will seek to thwart and defeat every single one of our efforts, which includes not only persecution and things like that, but also tempting us to sin so that our witness is distorted, that people see our sin instead of seeing Jesus. You see, he'll use any means necessary to defeat those efforts, which includes inciting others to persecute us and trials to discourage us. Let's continue, verse 5. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who will trouble you and give trouble to you who are, tr or give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. 
He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. So some of the words in this passage, people kind of, Christians sometimes in our culture kind of go, oh, that's uncomfortable. That's very blunt. It's very right in your face. But let's unpack this a little bit. He says all this, and he's talking about their endurance through, perse- through persecutions, the fact that they are, their faith is growing. He says all of that is evidence that God's judgment is right. Now I want to make sure I, I clarify something here, because what does Paul mean when he says God's judgment is right? Because oftentimes people think of judgment only as a negative thing. God is judging those who are wicked, and they will be sentenced to hell. But what he's actually talking about here is saying that your salvation is legitimate. Remember the grand transaction that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross took our sin upon himself and he transferred his righteousness to us. So now we are righteous. So that is the judgment. We are now righteous because of what Jesus has done and our belief in him. That that was enough to satisfy God's wrath against sin. And so What you have to understand here, what he's talking about is how you deal with suffering is a clear indication of whether your salvation in Christ is legitimate or not. And that the end result of this salvation is that you will be cleared of all wrongdoing. God's judgment is right. You are cleared because of what Jesus did, because you put your faith in Jesus. And so it is, and then he says, and as for which you are suffering. As a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Make sure you understand this. This is not about the fact that you made yourself worthy. It's because of what Jesus did that made you worthy. And so it is for that glorious truth that the Thessalonians are suffering to proclaim. And so I want you to understand this. It is a clear sign of someone's salvation when they are willing to publicly identify themselves with Jesus. See, it is only through our identification with Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection as our only hope that we are truly saved. And so when we are willing to publicly identify ourselves with that, and be willing to suffer the consequences, whatever may come, that shows how legitimate our faith really is. But then Paul wants to make sure his audience understands something. When you look at verse 6, he says, God is just. And he immediately clarifies what he means by that. You see, God is going to bring about justice for all humans. So for the Thessalonians, what he's talking about, he, God is going to pay back trouble to those who have troubled you. And that he's going to bring relief to those who have been troubled. It's a beautiful concept. What Paul is doing here is he's seeking to comfort the Thessalonians who could be really feeling defeated that their persecutors are winning the day and will continue to win the day. And I don't know about you, but sometimes as a Christian, I sometimes feel like evil is winning. Wickedness is winning. Unrighteousness is winning. And Christians have no hope. But we see this and it says that God is the ultimate judge. And what he's going to do is someday when Jesus returns, he's going to mete out the correct judgment on the wicked and on the righteous based on whether they believed in Jesus or not. And so then the question becomes, when will this happen? Paul answers that immediately. Paul tells us this will happen when Jesus returns. And I want to make sure I make a quick point of emphasis here. 
Many times people get so fixated on understanding the code, so to speak, on when Jesus will return or how certain events are going to take place in a certain order that they miss the point of these passages. See, the point of these passages is to give hope to believers who feel defeated and discouraged that God is eventually going to win. And he's going to bring justice on the world against those who have oppressed Christians and those who have persecuted Christians. And as well, what Paul does throughout this is he alludes a lot to the Old Testament and passages that refer to this concept called the day of the Lord. You see, the people of Israel believed that Yahweh was going to come someday. This is the day of the Lord where he would bring judgment to the whole world and people would all around the world would know that it was him. But what Paul is doing is he's equating Jesus with Yahweh, the Lord who was going to come. And so it's very clear here what Paul is doing. Despite what some uh, New Testament scholars might say, they're non-Christian ones, secular ones, that the early church had a very strong understanding that Jesus was God in the flesh. And what Paul does here is he uses some really interesting terms to talk about Jesus' return. First, that Jesus will be revealed from heaven in a blazing fire. This is a connection to Isaiah 66, 7, where the king, Yahweh, will be revealed from heaven. You'll look up in the sky, you'll see him, and he's going to bring judgment. So again, Paul is making Jesus the same person, because there Isaiah is talking about Yahweh, talking about God, and here he's saying Jesus is going to be the one that's doing that exact thing. See, the word Paul uses here for revealed is this Greek word apocalypsis. It means uncovering. And as currently, you see, Jesus is hidden to the human eye. But when Jesus comes back, he's going to make this grand entrance so that there will no longer be any excuse that someone can make that he isn't God. Because it says elsewhere that we're going to see him and everybody in the world is going to see him coming. You're going to look up and there he is. He's up in the sky. This return will be an inescapably clear statement that he is God and he has come to rule and judge the world. So this picture actually should give great hope to Christians who are struggling and suffering because Jesus will come again and make things right. But for those who have not placed their faith in Christ, this image can be terrifying, knowing that judgment is coming. And so what is Jesus coming to do? And here's where we start to get uncomfortable. Punish those who do not know God and disobey the gospel. We get really uncomfortable with that concept of punishment. But what Paul means here is that those who don't have that personal faith in Jesus, who have not participate in that grand transaction I was talking about earlier, those who have not placed their faith in Christ in that way are going to have judgment come upon them. People have this hard time with the idea of Jesus being a judge condemning people to eternal punishment, as if he is some sort of petulant child who didn't get his way and he wants to punish people for it. But we must see it as right for God to do this for a few reasons. First, would an earthly judge be a good judge if he let those who are evil get off scot-free for no reason at all? We'd be outraged. We'd be furious if that happened. But second, in many ways, God is simply giving them the life that they already chose. You see, they chose in this life to live without God, and now they get to live in eternity without him. And they'll realize how big of a mistake that actually is. So here's the other question. Would he be a good God if he forced them to come into his presence when they had rejected him their entire lives? No. 
that would not be a loving thing to do. So you have to understand, God's judgment here is not vindictive, it's not irrational, but it's measured out based upon merit, and we would deserve that if not for what Jesus did on the cross. But I want you to see something else that Paul is doing here. When he says in verse 9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction, and then he says, shut out from the presence of the Lord. I want you to understand, for Paul, the ultimate punishment is not just the destruction Okay? But the ultimate punishment is being forever shut out from the presence of God. You see, they will not have the opportunity to be in the presence of the Lord. This is our great hope. The great New Testament scholar G.K. Beale, this is what he had to say about this. Thus the punishment fits the crime in that those who refuse to know God and want to be separate from him in this life will be punished by being separated from God in the next life. So he's basically just already giving them what they want. They don't want to be with God. Here it is. And lets you see what this is really like. And it's supposed to be a sad thing. But another aspect people have trouble with is the phrase that Paul says here of the everlasting destruction. In other words, if God is truly loving, wouldn't he just end their suffering at some point? But unfortunately, the way Paul words this, he doesn't give us that room. And I want you to make sure you understand something I just said a couple minutes ago. For Paul, the everlasting destruction is not sharing the glory of God through believing in the gospel. You see, to Paul, heaven or hell are not just places that we go to when we die, but it is the reality of whether we get to experience the mighty glory of God or not. Whether we get to participate in being a part of his family or not. And so on that same day that Jesus comes to judge and punish the wicked, he will come to be glorified in his people and marveled at among those who've put their faith in Christ. You see, Paul uses a word here. What he's doing is he's kind of giving us a concept that, yes, this return of Jesus is absolutely certain, but we also don't know when that's going to happen. But his coming, what we do know is that it will be glorious. It will be will leave us awestruck and in amazement. We will look up in the sky. We will see him coming. So if any of us are around on this earth when that happens, it'll be the greatest confirmation of our faith ever. And so he tells the Thessalonians, this is going to include you. So in some ways, it looks like even from if somebody has passed away there in heaven, they'll get to witness this too, that they can marvel at Christ's return because they believed what Paul had said about who Jesus is and about his return and how we can have hope in that and that this gives us our second mentality. We hope in Jesus' return when he will be the judge of all humanity. See, as I said earlier, far too often Christians have become overly fixated on trying to predict when Jesus will return or in what order certain end times events are going to take place when that miss completely misses the point of the biblical perspective. For Paul and the other New Testament writers, the point is that Jesus' return will be an incredible reversal of fortunes. When once we were persecuted, now our persecutors will be punished. When once we were ridiculed, now our mockers will be revealed as foolish. When once we were imprisoned, we will be set free and our jailers will be the ones who are punished. You see, for all those people in power, the rulers, the authorities, the jailers, the mockers, the persecutors, they think their power over us is absolutely permanent. It will last forever. But Christians know that ultimately Jesus will win in the end, and this should give us incredible hope. And even though we've been waiting as Christians for 2,000 years for Jesus to return, 
our hope is certain that he will return someday. And so now we ask, what do we do in the meantime? Paul will talk about that now in verses 11 through 12. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power, he may bring to fruition every, your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul ends this chapter with a prayer. So with it in mind that the Thessalonians are going to face suffering and that Jesus is going to return to bring justice on their behalf, Paul then stops and he prays for them. And what is this prayer? First, that God will make them worthy of the calling. I want you to understand this. It is God who is the one who makes you worthy of the calling. I want you to hear this phrase that I learned from a, a pastor that I really love and respect and listen to a lot. His name is Paul Tripp. This is what he had to say. You can never become a grace graduate. You see, oftentimes as Christians, we believe this idea that once we have given our lives to Jesus, okay, now it's up to me from here on out to live a good life for Jesus. Then we get disappointed in ourselves. We feel discouraged when we can't do it. But look at what Paul says. I pray that God will make you worthy of the calling. You see, grace is not just the forgiveness you receive for your sin, but it is also the enabling force through God's spirit indwelling in you by which you can glorify God with the way that you live. And I know that last sentence was a mouthful, but I want you to understand this. God's grace will lead you to live a life that is worthy of the calling of God on your life to believe in him. You see, far too often Christians live in this powerless belief that they must do the work to change themselves once they believe in Jesus. But this could not be further from the truth. Grace gives you what you need to be worthy of God's calling. Remember that grand transaction, you already are worthy of God's calling because God made you so. And now you have to learn how to live that life depending on him. And then secondly, he says, and that by his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness. Notice who's the one doing the work again, by his power, by God's power, not you gritting your teeth to get better, which make sure you hear me. There needs to be hard work on our part to follow Jesus, but it is still by God's power that we do it. And sometimes, he, you know, he talks about the desire for goodness. Sometimes we have these desires that I think are often misplaced. They're not often wrong. So things like getting a new job, getting married, having kids, living comfortably, going to the college of our dreams, things of that nature. They're not in and of themselves wrong, but what Paul is talking about here is that your desire for goodness, this moral goodness brought about by a transformation of your heart where you live a more righteous life before God. What I'm saying is that some of those desires are, are, are they shortchange what God wants to do in your life. God wants to radically change you. God wants to use you. God wants to make you new. And so those things, yes, we can desire those things, but God wants to do something in our hearts even more so. But that every deed, look at this, the next phrase, and your every deed prompted by faith. How many of us have always kind of felt like following Jesus is out of our obligation or guilt? We think, oh man, I got to read my Bible today. I got to spend some time in prayer. I got to study the Bible. I got to read about Jesus, all these different things. We feel this obligation or guilt. But look at what he says, that your these good deeds would be prompted by faith, by what God has done in you. 
So how does this happen, and what is this power he's talking about? Again, I said it earlier, it is the Holy Spirit who dwells in you when you put your faith in Christ. He transforms your heart, makes you righteous before God, and gives you the power you need to live a righteous life. Gordon Fee, a great New Testament scholar and writer, had this to say, God has committed himself to them, the Thessalonians, to empower such a life through the indwelling spirit. Notice how he phrased that. God has committed himself to this. This is not just something he he goes, oh, I've got to help Chris again with this problem he's got going on. No, he's like, no, I'm going to do it. We're going to do this. I'm working with it. I am committed to making this happen. Have you ever thought of that? That God is committed to making you more mature to help you grow in your faith? That's what he wants. And so Paul gives reason for his praying for this in verse 12. Because he wants Jesus to be glorified in them. But notice what he also says here. He says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. There's a reciprocity here of glory, that it's back and forth, that we get to share in the glory of Jesus. Something we absolutely do not deserve because of our sin is now available and offered to us. And this only happens by grace. But he's wanting the name of Jesus to be glorified. The name for Jewish people is a representation of, of a person's nature and character. In, in other words, their entire person. And to glorify means to exalt. So what Paul wants the Thessalonians to do is to exalt the nature and character of Jesus to the whole world by the way that they live. And so this leads us to our last mentality, is that we seek to glorify Jesus by depending on God's power in us. You see, I said it earlier, many Christians have believed for far too long in this powerless idea that being a Christian does not leave any accountability on your life to try to live uprightly and righteously. There is a huge standard for it, and its purpose is to glorify Jesus. It's not about us and making us look great, but to make Jesus look great and to make him attractive to the world because of what he has done in us. But I want you to understand this but it is all about what God does in us and how he alone has the power to make us new. You see, when we depend on Jesus to do this, he then can be glorified in us. You see, this is our ultimate goal because Jesus reminded us in John 15, 5, that apart from him, we can do nothing. Not some things we can do apart from him, but no things. We cannot do anything apart from him we need him every minute of every hour of every day to be what he has called us to be and so as it has been apparent today jesus is coming to bring justice and judgment to the world you see for the christian this will be this glorious day where we will marvel at the glory of jesus knowing that he has won the victory that he is coming as king and that we will be vindicated but for those who are not christians it will be a day of remorse and grief as they realize how they've been wrong their whole lives and how it is now maybe too late to turn. But here is how you can be rescued from this. If you are looking inward to yourself and seeing that you have sin in your life, you can participate in that grand transaction where you recognize I have sin, I have a condition in my heart that I can't save, and if I believe in Jesus, my sin is placed upon him, and now his righteousness is placed upon me. You will be reconciled to God. Your sins will be forgiven, and you will be given a new life, and you can now say that Jesus is your king. And if you do not turn, a life eternal in Christ will not be yours to take up any longer. And so the dynamic presented here by Paul is not merely one of destruction in hell or not. That's a part of it. 
But what I'm presenting to you this morning is the opportunity to have real life in Jesus, to live in his kingdom, in that tension, the now and the not yet. Yes, to have your sins forgiven, to be reconciled to God, but be wrapped up into this new life he has opened up to you to make you new and to help you live as a representative of his kingdom to the world. So if you have not yet believed in Jesus, you have a chance now. Confess that you have sinned, that you have a, you have a condition in your heart you can't solve, you can't fix on your own, and repent of that sin, turning away from it and believe in Christ's sacrifice, and you will be saved from that destruction and brought to a new life in Christ. And so while we wait for, his, the, for this return of Jesus, for those of us who are Christians, let's seek to make changes in our lives to better align ourselves with living for his glory. Let's ask God's spirit to work in our hearts to reveal to us areas that we need to see change. And then for those of us who are Christians, let's, let's think of people in our lives that we could begin to build a relationship with so that we can share with them the good news of the saving message of the gospel. So ask yourself, who do you want to see saved from the coming destruction and be brought into eternal fellowship with Jesus being wrapped up in his glory forever? And let's, let's remind ourselves what we wanted to learn this morning. That we live for the glory of Jesus in everything we do here and now while we wait for him to return and bring his justice to the world. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you have given us this opportunity. God, I ask that there are people who are watching right now, God, that they are listening and they have been convicted of sin. And Jesus, that they would then say right now that they want to live their lives for you, that they say, Jesus, I have sinned. I cannot fix myself. Jesus, would you forgive me? And they would be made right with you. God, I pray that there would be people out there like that. But God, also we pray that we would, as Christians, seek to live in that glory, to recognize that we need to reshape our lives, refocus, so that we are focused more on your kingdom here and now while we wait for you to return. And so we give this all to you and we pray this in your name.